so if you're visiting with us this morning, the first thing I want to tell you is that we, uh, we're in the middle of a series this year on the wisdom literature of the Bible. There are several books in the Bible that are, that are known as wisdom books. We just finished a series on the most familiar of those wisdom books, the, the book of Proverbs, full of pithy statements about the stuff all of us deal with in our lives. We've just brought that to a head, and now we have... Now today, this morning, we're moving into the next wisdom book on our list, the book of Job. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I want to tell you there's some Bibles here at the center of each aisle. Uh, flag somebody down who's sitting on the edge, they'd be happy to pass one over to you. Um, you can, there's a table of contents at the front of, that, uh, of, the, of the Bible, and it'll tell you what page to find the book of Job. It's a title that looks like Job, as in teacher or doctor or barista. It's pronounced Job, though, as in Bluth. You don't have to read far to notice that this book is vastly different from the book of Proverbs. So different, in fact, that you might be thinking, especially if you were here for the Proverbs series, you might be thinking, how is this wisdom literature? What's the connection? Because Proverbs is all about order. Proverbs is about cause and effect. Proverbs is about do this and expect this to happen as a result. Proverbs is about the ins and outs of everybody's life. About money, about sex, about your words, about your relationships. Job doesn't have that breadth. Job certainly doesn't have that clarity. But Job is wisdom literature because Job is about real life. How to make sense of it. How to cope with it. There can be no true wisdom that doesn't recognize the fact that the world as we experience it, every single one of us, that the world as we experience it is not the world that we wish it was. That it is deeply, profoundly, even pervasively disordered. There's an order to it. That's Proverbs. There is deep disorder in our experience. What we know from experience is that the innocent suffer. If Proverbs is about reaping what you sow, then what do you say to the one in six boys, to the one in four girls that are sexually abused before they hit 18? What do you say to the, near, to the families of the nearly 10,000 unsuspecting people who had nothing to do with the geological forces that caused the earthquake in Nepal a month ago that killed them? And what do you say about I mean, any number of the details in your lives that I don't even know about that just don't make sense to you? That's what Job's about. That's what makes Job wisdom. Because it never shrinks back from acknowledging that's what the world is like. And it never dodges any of our questions. It won't answer them on our terms. But it won't dodge them either. And what we want to do in the next five weeks, including today, is try to track with this book as it probes questions all of us have about evil 
suffering, innocence, and mystery. The book of Job is about a man, a man named Job. It's a story of horrible things that happened to a good man. That's the opening and the closing chapters of the book. That's what we're going to talk about today. The book is bracketed by a story. Then the middle, almost all of this very long book, is a series of poetic conversations about what Job has experienced, reflecting Job and his perspective on it, and also some of Job's friends who are trying to make sense of it. So for for 30-ish chapters, they're both going back and forth at each other, trying to make sense out of what's happened to Job. So what we're going to do in this series is take the story on its own terms today, try to understand it, set the stage for where we're going from here. And then in the weeks to come, we're going to focus on Job's friends, what it was they thought was going on as they observed Job's life. They are a cautionary tale. They are what not to do when your friend is in trouble. Then we'll talk about Job's perspective because Job is a great model to us on how to suffer in faith when you don't understand what's going on. And then in the the last couple of weeks of the series, we're going to look at God's response to Job, which doesn't answer Job's questions but gives us precisely the perspective that we're going to need if we're going to be able to navigate a world that is broken with wisdom and faith. That's where we're headed in the weeks ahead. I want to I start today with the story. And even before I get there, quickly, a, a commercial or two for you here. We've got some, uh, some resources. Back here on the resource table, it'll help you with this study if you want to go deeper. Uh, it's a long book. We're only spending five weeks on it. There's a lot more than we're going to be able to get into. Therefore, we have this. This book is awesome. It's a book by Christopher Ashe. He's a pastor in England. Um, it's really just a collection of his sermons on Job. But he, he treats pretty much every passage on its own. And unlike the kind of overview effect that I'm going to be trying to give you, he goes into great depth and it's wonderful. It's practical, pastoral, it's warm, it's, it's real, and um, it can be yours. Unfortunately, it's $25. That's Amazon's price, but it's worth it if you want something on, on Job in more depth. Then this one is one we've talked about before. It's a much more abbreviated introduction to all of the wisdom books in the Bible, three main ones in the Old Testament anyway. And it has a couple of shorter chapters on Job that introduce the main themes. Um, it's got stuff on Proverbs, too, in case you weren't here for that series and want a quick intro. And it's got stuff on Ecclesiastes, which we go to after today, or after this, this next series. So this one's back there on the, go- on the table as well if you want it. Make use of those, and we'd be happy to, to order some more if these get sold today. Now, I want to move into to our, our subject for today. We're going to unpack Job's story together, try to understand his suffering and his experience of it so that we can at least, here's my simple goal for today, so that we can at least recognize the questions that drive this book. We're not going to answer them today. We won't answer them fully even in the weeks to come. Today's purpose is to see what's going on and to understand what's at stake so that the rest of the sermons in the series will make, some, will make more sense. To do that, I want to begin by reading the setup for everything that happens in the book. This comes in Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep. 
3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they'd send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he'd rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. There's a lot this opening scene doesn't tell us. doesn't tell us all that much about this guy's background. We don't know where Uz was. It wasn't in Israel. It was part of the East. The East, written from Israel's perspective, would be in modern-day Iraq or Syria. We don't know a whole lot about him, but we do know about his character. And that's what sets up our story. See, this opening scene, these first five verses... The world they describe is a world that makes sense in light of our series in Proverbs. Where typically, you live a wise life and good things come from it. Wisdom leads to happy consequences. That's normally the way that it works. That's the way it's worked here. What we're told about Job is that he was blameless. doesn't mean he was perfect. This is a word that refers to integrity in the original language. In other words, what you see is what you get. His insides matched up with his outsides. He knew it when he was wrong. He didn't try to hide it. He confessed it. He was blameless, genuine, and true. He was upright. He shoots straight with other people. He doesn't try to cut corners. He doesn't try to exploit the weak. He feared God. And what did Proverbs tell us? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. He got that God was God and he was not, and that his responsibility was to try to live in light of who God is, trusting in him, looking to him in everything. Job got that. He feared the Lord. And he turned away from evil. Again, Proverbs. One of the most common images we saw, especially in the first part of Proverbs, was the two ways. You've got the good way, the evil way, the wise way, and the foolish way. Choose wisely, my son, the author of Proverbs said over and over again. And now we're told Job did. Sometimes maybe he started down that evil path, but he saw it. And he turned away from it. And what did Proverbs tell us to expect from such a life? Proverbs one thirty three: Whoever listens to me will dwell secure, will be at ease, without dread of disaster. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Why? For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Proverbs 3 goes on. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Honor Him in the way Job had honored Him, feared Him, worshipped Him. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What we just read is that Job is our poster child for the wisdom of Proverbs. He did what Proverbs called all of us to. And what did he get? Almost unimaginable wealth. A family that was happy, that actually wanted to spend time together. 
The sons always feasting in each other's homes. Reputation as the greatest man in the East. He got exactly what Proverbs expected he would get. He had it all. And he was dwelling secure, with no dread of disaster, full of plenty, enjoying his peace. And he trusted God in the midst of it. He didn't take it for granted. He didn't forget him. He made sacrifices. He worshipped. He feared him. And then, everything came crashing down. What happened next is filled in by a narrator. Uh, Throughout this story that we're going to unpack today, we've got a narrator who is switching back and forth between the action on earth and the action in heaven, unseen by Job, that we're allowed into. Back and forth, back and forth. Now, because the emphasis here is on Job's experience, I want us to stick with Job. I want us to try, especially if this is a familiar story for you and you know what's going on in the gaps, I want you to try really hard to just imagine with Job what it's like to experience it from his perspective. He has no idea what's going on in heaven where God and the Satan are going back and forth over Job, where Job is like a game piece in some sort of cosmic game that they're playing. Job doesn't see that. Here's what Job sees. We see it with him. We don't see what happens. We receive the message that he receives. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Skip down there with me. Now there was a day, a day like any other for Job, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Even before Job heard this bit of news fully, before it had tumbled all the way out of the messenger's mouth, another messenger arrives with salt in the wounds. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Before this servant is even finished, while he was yet speaking, there came another, more terrorism, The Chaldeans this time formed three groups and they made a raid on the camels and they took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Imagine the shock. Imagine the numbness he surely felt. And then verse 17 delivers, or verses 18 and 19 rather, deliver the final blow, the most devastating Here we have another natural disaster. While this messenger was still speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and their dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job was the greatest man in the East. He had everything every one of us wants. He had the stuff. He had the family. He had the reputation. 
and he's now lost everything. All that he has left at the end of this scene is his health. And even that didn't last. Sometime later, we're told, still grieving over all that he'd lost, all of a sudden, from his experience, sores start popping up all over his body. Chapter 2 says that Job was struck with loathsome sores, verse 7, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And the only relief that he can find comes from scraping himself with broken pottery, sitting in a pile of ashes, waiting for his broken down body to merge with the pile. Job's life is in crisis. And at the heart of the crisis is what Job, as a man of faith, knows to be true. That everything that happens in this world, every stormy wind, every blow of the oppressor, happens in a world that is controlled in its minutest detail by the God who rules all. That the God whom he worshipped, whom he delighted in, whom he served with his life, was the same God who had allowed everything that happened to him. Job was a worshiper. He didn't have the secular persons out. Stuff happens. He knew stuff doesn't happen. And so Job's suffering raises the problem that Job will wrestle with throughout the entire book. What is God doing? If Proverbs is about the order that we can see in our experience, about living wisely by recognizing and embracing that order, Job is about the order we can't see, the mystery that all of us have to acknowledge if we're to accept that there is a God who created and rules over all, and yet there is suffering that comes to the innocent. Job won't offer us any trite explanations. He won't offer us any proverbial summary of how it all fits together. It's too profound a problem for that. His book is too realistic for that. It leaves the mystery as it is in the unreadable mind of God. But maybe this will encourage you, friends. This is what we'll unpack together with Job's friends next week. For whatever mystery there is surrounding this book, one of the things that, that's clear is that sometimes your suffering is not your fault. that some suffering is innocent, permitted for good reasons you may not get to see, but reasons for which you carry no shame. 
suffering, and mystery is the first connection that we're going to need to unpack if we're going to understand the book of Job. There's another, though. Suffering and worship. The first question I wanted us to have on our radar as we go into the book of Job is the mystery question. What is God doing? But there's another question. A question that the scenes in heaven introduce us to. A question that is always underlying all of our suffering. Job doesn't offer a final solution to the mystery of innocent suffering. I've said that, but at least it does pull back the curtain on a couple of things that are happening behind the scenes. Things that aren't seen by us as we grind out our days here on earth. Things that Job didn't see. Job pulls back the curtain in these heavenly scenes on a strange court throne room type scene where God is sitting on His throne and the sons of God are coming to Him reporting on what they've been doing. Let's go into that scene together in verse 6 of chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. A couple of things to notice here. Sons of God is the Old Testament's word for, or term for Beings that aren't human but are powerful, created by God, under God's authority. That goes for this figure called Satan as much as for any of the others. He reports to God. We tend to think of Satan as a proper name because that's the way we use it. But here, that in, in the original, it's not the way it's used. It's a, it's a term that describes him. It, it means accuser or adversary. Think of a prosecutor in a trial who's coming at the defendant speaks more to what his job is, to what he's doing, than to, than to a name. And he's here, just like all the others, to report to the God under whose authority he exists. Let's, con- let's continue with the story. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God, once again, accepts this Proverbs-like summary of Job's goodness. He doesn't push back on it. He accepts it. Job was innocent. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand. Touch all that he has. And he'll curse you to your face. What's Satan claiming here at root? It looks like he's the adversary of Job. He's accusing Job of having a kind of mercenary faith. Job is only in love with what God gives him, not in love with God himself. Job will be faithful as long as he continues to get everything that he wants out of life. But take away what he has, and he'll curse you. Satan is cynical. He thinks Job only 
obeys because of what God is giving him. On the surface, it looks like he's accusing Job of being a hypocrite. But underneath it all, he's not accusing Job. Fundamentally, please don't miss this. This is key to the book. It's key to our lives. Fundamentally, Satan is accusing God. What he's saying to God is that you aren't good enough to satisfy your people by yourself. You are only as good, only as satisfying as the gifts that you've chosen to give. He's making a claim about God. And God, because of Job's innocence, because they delight in each other, because Job is his friend, God decides to prove Satan wrong using the life of Job. Stretch out your hand, Satan had challenged the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. After that first scene where Job loses all of his family and all of his stuff, where he has nothing but his health, he still hasn't cursed God. We're going to look at that together in a couple of weeks. Despite losing everything, still he fears him. The accuser has to admit it. So the second heavenly scene picks up in chapter 2. The Lord comes back to Satan and says the same thing. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you. That's where the sores come from. We'll see. So again, the Lord permits him. I get, I get that there are so many questions here. What is this scene? Is this normal? Is this happening today? Why would God allow the torment of one of his friends who feared him? What can I expect of God for my life? We're going to swim in these waters together the next month or so. But for now, I want to focus on one thing that is clear. One thing that for all the mystery cuts through it, is aimed at us, is as true for us as it is for Job in this story. And that is the next question. Can you worship God? Can you trust Him? When you lose or never get all the things we tend to trust Him for. Because here's why you need to know this. Here's why you need to face this question now. There is a sense in which Job's suffering is unique. The scale of it, the swiftness of it. But friends, there's another sense in which it isn't unique. Job lost everything. You will too.
all of us have bodies that decay. Any of us that have children have children that will die. Whatever stuff we may have accumulated at this point in our lives, a hundred years from now, it'll be rotten, broken down, gone. You will lose everything Job lost to time and death. So you, in a very real and unavoidable sense, face the same question Job faced. Can you lose it all and still love God? That brings me to the last thing that I only want to point to this morning. To understand Job, we have to understand the connection between suffering and mystery, impenetrable mystery. The connection between suffering and worship, the underlying question, can you love him if you lose everything else? But there is another theme, a theme that comes at the very end of Job, a thing that we're going to consider together, especially when we consider God's words to Job near the end of the book. And that is the connection between suffering and redemption. We don't have time to read the entire account, but this afternoon it might interest you to read Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. It's the last chapter in the book. And in this chapter, Job gets everything back. It's all restored. Spoiler alert. He gets double. And that raises all sorts of questions too. Because the whole book is about explaining that you can't expect that everything always makes sense in this world. That's the point. One of the major, major points of the entire book. So some people look at the ending where Job gets it all back and they're like, that just doesn't seem worthy of the book. Where's the mystery there? He suffers in faith and he gets what's coming to him. But I actually want to point you to another detail at the end of this chapter. It's true that he, he does get some stuff back. But it is, it is a redemption story with an asterisk at best. Because I want you to look at verse 17, where it all ends. The final word on Job's life. Job died. An old man and full of days. There's a tension here in this story that ends happily Sort of. Why present the innocent sufferer getting back everything that he lost? Why throw in the fact at the end that his life still ended in death, which means he lost it all again? The reason it ends there, I believe, is that Job, like so many other great figures in the Old Testament, is not the answer to our problems. Job is a wonderful model. He is nobody's savior. Job's suffering in faith is at best a faint glimmer, a beautiful but still just faint glimmer of the beauty in the one who did not consider himself equal with God, to be, the quality with God to be grasped, but, but emptied himself, gave it all up, and was obedient to the end, even to death, even to death on the cross. That innocent sufferer who was vindicated, 
for his obedience. God bestowed upon him an honor that is unmatched anywhere else in the world. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Job suffers innocently. Job is vindicated in a way. But in a way that points us to the ultimate innocent sufferer who suffered for us so that we don't face the fate that Job himself faced after it was all said and done. Because what Jesus came to deliver us from, what Jesus came to give to us, is a deliverance from a death that steals everything that we love about this world, and an entrance into a vindication that He has earned for us, into a world where we don't lose what we love, where we receive double where our reward is extravagant, like Job's was. But not because we deserve it, but because Jesus deserves it. Job is a faint but beautiful pointer to a great reality that is ours, in our suffering, even while we suffer through mystery. That because Christ has suffered for us, because Christ is risen for us, Christ can provide to us a world in which we lose nothing. For we have Him in all His fullness. We see Him as He is. And we rejoice in His likeness. Father, help us hold on for that day because of our time together in Job. We look ahead to it with some, not necessarily fear, but definitely some uncertainty. Its message is hard to hear, it's hard to understand, it's hard to embrace sometimes. So help us, we pray, by your Spirit to go there with you in your Word and to joyfully receive from your hand all that you have promised to those who hold on. Help us to hold on, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.